Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name's Patty Jane Geller, and it's my pleasure to welcome everyone to today's event, Why America Needs the Long Range Standoff Weapon. The Long Range Standoff Weapon, or the LRSO, is the Air Force's replacement program for the current Air Launch Cruise Missile, or ALCOM, which is set to retire nearly 40 years past its intended lifetime. I actually recently authored a report on the LRSO, arguing that it will be critical to maintaining the air leg of the nuclear triad, enabling bombers to hold at risk defended targets for the decades to come. But as with many, any major nuclear acquisition program, the LRSO faces roadblocks, including decreasing defense budgets, acquisition challenges, and anti-nuclear opposition. Fortunately, we have a great panel lined up for you today who will be able to answer some of these critical questions. So we have our panelists on screen, and at first I'd like to introduce Lieutenant General James Dawkins, currently serving as Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategic Deterrence and Nuclear Integration in the U.S. Air Force. As he is responsible to the Secretary and Chief of Staff of the Air Force for nuclear deterrence operations, there is perhaps no one better than General Dawkins to talk to us about the Air Force's LRSO program. Next, we have Peter Husey, Director of Strategic Deterrence Studies at the Air Force Association's Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. He is also president of his own defense consulting firm, Geostrategic Analysis, and brings a long career of experience in strategic forces issues to our panel. So we're going to start start off today's event with some opening remarks by General Dawkins before moving into a moderated discussion. Then we'll have some time at the end of the event to take questions from the audience, so please feel free to submit your questions that you have throughout the event. Um, so General Dawkins, whenever you're ready uh, to start us off, go for it. Hey, you bet. Hey, good afternoon, and, and thank you, Pat and Jane, for the opportunity to join this panel discussing the importance of the LRSO. And it's always good to be on a panel with Peter Husey. So I really enjoy the teaming that we've been able to do in the past. Before I launch into a discussion on LRSO, I want to remind the audience of a few key points that I think are important uh, overall with regard to the deterrent. Nuclear deterrence has served as the foundation for United States national security since 1945. Our nuclear deterrent underwrites our diplomatic actions across the globe, backstops our conventional forces to allow them to have freedom of action, and assures allies such that they don't pursue nuclear capabilities on their own. A little bit of a non-proliferation aspect to that. The triad has remained across all U.S. administrations as the most effective way to maintain deterrence due to its responsiveness, flexibility, and survivability. Nuclear threats to our nation are increasing, and we must have the ability to respond appropriately in order to reduce the risk of nuclear war. Make no mistake, no leg of the triad is expendable. Each provides capabilities that, should they go away, embolden our adversaries and lower the threshold of escalation to nuclear war. All weapon systems of the triad are operating decades beyond their design life. Advancement of adversary offensive and defensive capabilities threatens the credibility of our nuclear deterrent, potentially tipping the scales of strategic stability in their favor. While there is some risk associated with the concurrent modernization of the entire triad that we find ourselves facing right now, delaying modernization of any aspect will lead to unacceptable vulnerabilities. The Obama administration began a robust modernization and recap program starting with the 2010 NPR, or Nuclear Posture U, and this has continued through this administration as well. 
These efforts will not only modernize the triad based on the current threat, but also improve the safety, security, and reliability of our weapon systems. A crucial point that sometimes gets lost in the debate. The Air Force is not creating new capabilities. I want to make that a point, but we're merely replacing or upgrading the current systems. As such, our modernization efforts are not contributing to an arms race. So turning to LRSO, let me give you the why, why, why we need LRSO or uh, standoff cruise missiles in general. Although the ICBMs are on alert and submarines are at sea every day, the United States visibly demonstrates a resolve to assure our allies and to deter our adversaries through the air leg of the triad, which is composed of B-52s and B-2s, and in another six or seven years, the B-21. During day-to-day -day competition, we do this by conducting bomber task force missions during periods of relative stability and forward deploying bombers to deter regional aggression. We've seen this in the past, this past year with regard to Iran, when we've forward deployed B-52s that are on the ground uh, in the theater or flown them from the United States uh, taking a spin in, through the Middle East and then returned again. Again, showing we have the capability uh, to reach out and influence events with our bombers. Should competition move to the conflict stage, and if directed by the president, we can put our nuclear-capable bombers on alert and disperse them during a crisis situation. These actions are visible to our adversary, serve as a means to signal our intentions, and contribute to the maintenance of strategic stability. For the air leg of the triad, the Air Force must be able to hold legitimate military targets at risk across the full spectrum of conflict and escalation ladder. To do this, we must have standoff and stand-in options to provide the president the ability to achieve desired national objectives against threats. And LRSO is the future standoff capability for the Air Force. For the nation and our allies, the unique characteristics of nuclear-armed cruise missiles greatly increase the effectiveness of the overall deterrent. It enables us to impose significant costs on the adversary's air defenses, requiring large investments and advances in, in detection, tracking, and command and control, just to challenge a single cruise missile. This is a cost-imposing strategy, and for every dollar they spend on trying to defend, they can't spend that money on, on creating new offensive capabilities. It also enables us to simultaneously prosecute multiple targets with a single bomber, increasing the probability of mission success while decreasing risk to our forces. So I want to talk a little bit about the Alcom, our current standoff capability. Again, uh, Patty Jane, you talked, you know, it was fielded in 1982 with only a 10-year design life, and now it's 30 years past its design service life. Well, hey, we've got some great airmen and, uh, and also some teams over at NNSA who help keep this missile uh, safe, secure, and reliable, even though it is so old. We've got several life extension programs underway. They work day in and day out to keep the, um, uh, the missile ready to go. Uh, but those continue to increase as we go on in time. We will continue to have uh, challenges in keeping that um, ready to go. So while we have high outcome reliability, uh, no life extension program is unlimited just as important but sometimes get lost in the discussion about um, you know modernizing because our systems are old it's not just because our systems are old and, and, are, and are becoming more difficult to, to maintain it's that we have to keep up with the threat you know not only was the missile designed uh, with technology we had in 1970s or 1982 delivery but it was based on an adversary threat system that was uh, you know a soviet threat system in the 1970s and those have improved since the missile was in field, as we know, and will continue to improve. And while we've been able to keep up uh, with those threats, uh, the future is going to be more difficult as we continue forward. 
So for all these things, the Obama administration uh, back in, in the, after the NPR in the 2014 to 2016 timeframe recognized this and actually decided to accelerate the W80, the, the nuclear warhead aspect of it, decided to accelerate that a, a couple of years and um, which helped accelerate the LRSO program. Just now, I'm gonna to turn to a little bit of a program status on, on the program itself. Uh, the program is currently in what they call technology maturization and risk reduction phase. That, that's a mouthful, but that's just saying we are on uh, on the timeline, the acquisition timeline to uh, field this. And so we've got Raytheon as the contractor on this right now. In the spring, we hope to achieve milestone B, another acquisition term. It just means that we go into a, a, the next stage. Where we have a lot of engineering done to, to, to determine how we would manufacture something at scale. Hopefully that will be in May of this year. At the same time, you know, we've got to be linked with the National Nuclear Security Administration or NNSA. It's a uh, semi-autonomous organization, uh, part of DOE, and they manage the, the warheads. And we've got to stay really aligned with them. And right now we are. Uh, they will fill the refurbished W80-4 warhead, uh, and that will be integrated into the LRSO. So again, both programs are on track to meet the initial operation capability date. And we always are looking for opportunities to accelerate production and fielding, again, to provide us a little bit more maneuver room as uh, all three legs of the triad start to age out simultaneously in the late 20s. So in summary, LRSO is critical to the bomber force. The bomber force is critical to the triad, and the triad is critical to assuring allies and achieving deterrence against today and tomorrow's nuclear adversaries. Thanks, and I look forward to your questions. Awesome. Thanks so much, General Dawkins. Um, I'm going to jump right into some, some questions here. Um, so, so first, General Dawkins, you talked about the important role that the air leg of the nuclear triad plays in visibly signaling to our adversaries uh, U.S. intentions. And so currently, U.S. nuclear bombers carry both gravity bombs and cruise missiles to perform this mission. I'm um, wondering, can you explain the difference between the capabilities provided by uh, each of these two weapons, the gravity bomb versus the uh, the cruise missile, the future LRSO, and why we need both weapons um, for the air leg of the triad to do that mission? So I, that's a great question. And uh, there are great differences. Uh, of course, with a, a gravity weapon, which um, you know, falls from the airplane, does not have any uh, pro propellant to it. It just depends on gravity to fall to the ground. Uh, that requires you to fly over um, each target uh, independently. Uh, so while a bomber can carry you know, several of those, of course, uh, uh, it, it will ensure that the, um, it's able to, to get it get to its target area, if you will, if it, if it can survive, if the bomber can survive its way uh, into the target set. So, um, and of course, the standoff missile provides you some great capability of being able to stand off outside the in, uh, adversary air defenses um, with, with a single bomber. So while they both uh, have their specific roles, um, you know, a large part of the deterrent depends on the, the standoff capability. The other nice thing the gravity weapon provides um, is it gives us a hedge against an anomaly. Uh, and same thing with the, the cruise missile and the gravity. Again, if we were to have a problem with one of those weapons, uh, those types of weapons, say the gravity weapon had an anomaly that we didn't, um, we were concerned about the reliability, we would have to pull those off the off the line and, and get those fixed. And and so having another uh, weapon to depend on is, is, of course, helpful and, again, gives us a little bit of a uh, reassurance capability. I also want to point out, though, that uh, the gravity weapons aren't just used by bombers. Uh, there's a big NATO component to that, uh, and, and that's uh, a big key 
uh, requirement for the gravity weapon. Um, Peter, some argue that bombers can perform their mission using only gravity bombs. Um, I'm wondering if you can you can expand on what uh, General Dawkins told us and describe some of the challenges in executing a, a nuclear mission if our bombers, you know, if we canceled LRSO and we only had gravity bombs to arm our bombers with. I want to thank you guys for uh, arranging this. Always, it's very interesting in, in the debates on the Hill about nuclear weapons, everybody's trying to find something they can delete or cut as, with the idea, well, we can be more efficient and more effective. If you only have a, you don't have a standoff weapon, you have to worry about air defenses, you have to worry about missile defenses, you have to worry area denial, access denial, which the bad guys are betting, getting better and better at. So while you can hit a lot of targets with a penetrating bomber, that you can't with an outcome because you're going to have to be, as my colleague Mark Gunziker here at the Institute says, you're going to have to add about 800 to 1,000 miles to your range if you're off outside the air defenses and where the Chinese or the Russians can push you. But without a penetrating cruise missile, you're not being able to get to the target. And if you're not stealthy, which also you have to be with a new cruise missile, which you're not with the existing one, uh, they can shoot this stuff down. So to be credible, in particular, if you're going to signal and you're going to send your bomber, you don't want to loiter in the enemy airspace. You want to be able to loiter outside the airspace, but still be credible enough to say, hey, we can hold critical targets at risk. So that's why you need a joint effort here. It's like a three-legged stool doesn't work if you cut out one of the legs or two-legged, okay, two. You need them both. Great. Um, General Dawkins, I'm going to go back to something you mentioned before. Um, you described LRSO as a hedge, and um, I've heard LRSO being referred to as a hedge for um, our nuclear modernization effort. Can you expand on the importance of LRSO to, to hedge uh, U.S. deterrence? What exactly you mean by that? You bet. So if we have a problem with our ICBMs or SLBMs um, that you know cause us to question their reliability, or we have a challenge with fielding a replacement system on time. Uh, Commander Stratcom as the warfighting uh, uh, component for the president with regard to the nuclear deterrence mission uh, is gonna look for where he can continue to meet the president's guidance on um, holding key targets with our adversaries at risk. So if he's got a, a challenge either in the submarine leg or in the ICBM leg, he's gonna look to, um, to the bomber leg to see if they can carry that, uh, the weight of that, those targeting requirements. And so in that case, depending on what the world event uh, situation looked like, he, you know, he may be required to put uh, bombers back on alert. Again, that would all, all depend upon the context of, of what happened. Uh, but what's nice about uh, this capability is with the LRSO and, um, and then of course the New START Treaty, which uh, as we all know, is going to expire here soon. Um, and there is talk that the next administration may renew it. So if we make the assumption that it does get uh, renewed, um, the way that the accounting was done in the treaty, each bomber counts as a single missile or a single weapon, I'm sorry. Even though that bomber can carry, in the case of the B-52, 20 uh, standoff cruise missiles. So um, that's a great relief for the commander Stratcom to know that he can rely on the bomber leg of the triad to help reduce the risk uh, that he could 
um, again, see in the other legs of the triad if, for instance, something uh, comes up as these systems get over uh, while we're waiting for the, uh, say, the GBSD to replace the Minuteman 3. Makes sense. Yeah, I've, I've also argued myself that LRSO is um, a great weapon to use for a hedge because it's relatively cheaper compared to some of the other um, nuclear modernization programs. And as General Dawkins, you mentioned in your remarks, where um, we're well on schedule to, to meet the IOC um, on LRSO by 2030. Um, so um, my next question, um, I'll start with Peter, our, our allies have been supportive of the United States LRSO program since it was initiated, initiated by the Obama administration. Can you explain how fielding the LRSO contributes to assuring our allies of the U.S. commitment to defending them? Well, as you know, the allies, particularly in Europe and in Asia, have said that they don't want to develop their own nuclear deterrent because they're facing Russia on the one hand and also facing China, both nuclear armed, and they have asked us to come in with a nuclear umbrella. That umbrella, if you're talking about using a ICBM or SLBM in a small, let's say the Russians or the Chinese use regional or low yield weapons or short range weapons, you want a lot more flexibility than just having to use your central strategic deterrent. In the bomber leg with a long range strike option, you can loiter outside the territory and signal the bad guys, don't move into, for argument's sake, the Baltics, don't try to go after Taiwan, don't go after uh, the Republic of Korea, all of which means you're very credible in saying that if you have the cruise missile. If you don't have the cruise missile, then the question is, how long is it going to take you to get to the targets you need to get to? And you have to go to each individual target, uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're talking about gravity bombs and penetrating bombers. So I think our European allies say the cruise missile has been here since 1981. We did an interim buy of the ACM. We only bought 400 of them. We retired them in 2012. They think this is much more credible, and that credibility gives them confidence that they can be part of an ally alliance like NATO, and they're not going to be attacked by Russia or China. Hey, Pat, Jane, if I can pile on a little bit there. So yeah, this really does come down to credibility. Uh, credibility uh, for the President of the United States, giving him some additional options so that he's not having to, to jump the escalation ladder from a, you know, a large conventional strike to a, you know, a very large uh, nuclear strike that can be seen as highly escalatory using ICBMs or SLBMs. Again, it's a, a matter of giving him uh, you know, steps on the, or rungs on the escalation ladder. And, and if you don't have those rungs, then it's uh, yeah, you can put in the, to the mind of the adversary the thought that they can, um, uh, you know, you would be self-deterred, that if they were to use low scale uh, or smaller scale, if there's such a thing, uh, nuclear weapons uh, in a small number, one or two, and our only option was uh, ICBMs or SLBMs, that uh, we would be self-deterred, and they could basically coerce us into uh, accepting a, um, a result or some sort of peace that really is, did not meet our interests or our allies' interests. So if the U.S. were to cancel or delay the LRSO, how do you think that our allies, um, both in Europe and the Indo-Pacific, would react to that? You know, I, I think, in, in, uh, I want to be careful, what I've heard from the arms control community is that there was a lot of frustration uh, from some of our allies, particularly in uh, the Pacific, when we pulled TLAM in, the uh, nuclear launch TLAM out. 
because they, I think they sort of saw that as their equivalent to the NATO dual capable aircraft B61 piece. And we gave them assurances that we would uh, have a, a force that we could you know, disperse or deploy if necessary, i.e. the bombers, uh, and, and or we could you know, strike from home with the bombers. And, and that was a key piece of the, the agreement. So as, if, we, if we talk about doing something different or, or you know, taking away uh, the bomber leg from the nuclear role, I think they would be very, very concerned about that. Um, and Peter may have other thoughts. Yeah, Patty, James, just let me say, Admiral Haney once gave a speech at one of my seminars, and as you know, he was strat commander, and he said, we have to give the bad guys an off-ramp. And what he meant by that is, if your only choice is to go immediately to what uh, Paul Nitze once said was the Armageddon option, meaning we're all dead, and you don't have an option that is lower on the scale that threatens the guy, your your adversary, you're not going to be able to achieve what you want to achieve, but we don't have to go to a very large exchange of nuclear weapons to prove it one way or the other and let people stop their aggression that's conventional at the time. I think the cruise missile on a bomber gives you an extraordinary capability to do that. And basically signals to your adversary, you can achieve what you want to achieve, even at a lower level. Now, I know people argue there's no such thing as the low-level use of nuclear weapons. Well, why does Russia have anywhere between two and 5,000 of them if they don't think they're valuable? And then the Chinese are also developing them. So, you know, the bad guys always get to vote. And that tells you a little bit about what they value and what they think is usable. Great. Thanks. Um, so we've heard the argument that LRSO would weaken strategic stability because the United States and its um, between the United States and its adversaries, because the LRSO could be used in a disarming first strike. Um, General Dawkins, how would you respond to this argument against the LRSO? So you know, uh, and these thoughts aren't just mine. These thoughts are from arms control folks who've worked both sides of the uh, you know in each administration. But I really have a hard time seeing how uh, it can be used as as a disarming. Uh, surprise strike. I mean, everything we do with the bombers is is visible. Um, whether it's you know when we go and we we generate them and load them up to whether we to when we fly them uh, towards the adversary, uh, all that's going to be detectable. Um, so this idea, you know, of surprise, uh, you know, because for an ar a, a couple things for a strike to be uh, disarming or or uh, for a strike to be destabilizing it has to be a surprise and it has to also be able to um, defeat the adversary's ability to respond back you've got to basically like I said disarm them uh, so um, the small number of weapons that the, that the you know bombers would carry if you will 20 at most uh, for each bomber the small number of weapons compared to the uh, large number of adversary uh, systems, the ones that are mobile, the ones that are uh, or on the subs, the ones that are survivable, make it very uh, difficult for me to you know see the logic there that um, they could be used in a disarming first strike. So again, I think this is a, a uh, people that that uh, great Americans who who um, are concerned about nuclear weapons and proliferation, uh, uh, they will continue to to push for uh, reasons to to not fund our uh, these programs uh, and to I think to some degree be optimistic and hope that somebody would follow us in, in cutting. Um, so they come up with these arguments. And uh, again, I just don't think that it's based on, on, on solid logic and reasoning. 
that the LRSO with a bomber could be, again, used in a disarming first strike. Yeah, and another argument we've heard from opponents is that uh, LRSO would hamper strategic stability because our adversaries wouldn't know whether our cruise missiles are conventional or nuclear armed, and that could lead to dangerous miscalculations. Um, how realistic is this risk of this miscalculation, and to what extent should it cause us to worry about fielding the LRSO, uh, either of you? Well, real quick, you know, going back to my previous discussion, um, it's not, you know, we can't do a disarming first strike just based on where the adversary is and actually where the adversary is going. I mean, right, China's pushing out for, for a triad. Right now, their 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 missiles are, are survival. They're they're land based because they are mobile. Uh, so if we if pull that off the the paper, you've got to make the assumption next that hey, so the bomber goes and it drops uh, several weapons. Let's say let's say it drops five or ten weapons at range uh, outside the adversary air defenses. So the adversary again, they've seen this whole lead up, they've seen the bomber fly, uh, they've detected them probably, but not within their threat rings or their ability to, to shoot the bomber down. Well, now they've got, you know, the, the folks that say it's destabilizing say that, uh, will argue that China or Russia will instantaneously launch a, a counter strike uh, because they're afraid of being disarmed. Well, again, I push that aside. So why would Russia or China risk launching a nuclear weapon or a large strike nuclear weapons if they didn't know for sure that what we had coming inbound was a nuclear weapon. And so I, I firmly believe that a, leadership, a, a leader of any country uh, is probably gonna wait to know for darn sure that they've been struck with a nuclear weapon, uh, particularly if they have a survivable second strike capability. So I, I don't buy the argument. And, and also, you know, context matters, we've, we've had cruise missiles for years, so has the adversary, but we've used cruise missiles, as has Russia. This has never come up. Uh, France has nuclear-armed uh, cruise missiles. Of course, Russia has nuclear-armed cruise missiles. And I think if it was destabilizing, uh, arms control negotiators would not have given us the bomber counting rules uh, as such. And, and again, these aren't my words. These are uh, testimony from previous administration folks like Rose Gottmuller, uh, uh, of course, other folks like Frank Miller, it's the, the folks who know about arms control uh, and do this day in, day out, have, uh, have not shown any concern about it being destabilizing uh, to, to any degree. Peter, any thoughts on that or additions? Well, I would agree with you. I would say also that, you know, all during the 1970s and 80s, we were worried about a preemptive uh, Soviet strike against our forces. And we were talking about a Soviet that had, Soviet Union had, eventually 12,000 nuclear warheads and the majority, vast majority of those on ICBMs and most of them on missiles versus bombers. And what's fascinating is that we're talking here about 1,550 warheads on missiles and the 60 bombers that count add, add up what you can actually do and you get about 2,000, but of all those about a third are on alert. So we would have to mad, dramatically change our alert rates, show our deployment uh, bombers in the air, uh, subs at sea, and so forth. The context would be totally different than day-to-day -day peacetime, which is what we were worried about in the 70s and 80s, that the Russians from a very kind of normal uh, environment could launch at us and be effective. So that the context is critically important. And I think a number of people that I know that worked in the Pentagon last couple of administrations have said, our B-52 bombers fly all the time. 
And the Russians and the Chinese, as far as we know, have never indicated to us that they're worried that they might be flying a nuclear mission in a sense of going to actually strike a country as opposed to signaling or going to the Middle East or to Guam to calm a crisis. So uh, I, I would say you're absolutely right, General, that I've never seen any evidence and the Russians and Chinese don't seem to have said anything about thinking that our deployment of the B-52 or the B-2 is somehow destabilizing. Um, so we actually have a lot of great questions coming in from the audience. So I'm going to get into those. Uh, this first question is from uh, John Tierpak from the Air Force Magazine to uh, General Dawkins. What's the thinking on a conventional variant of the LRSO? Um, is there a need for that? And at what point could that be brought into the program? And is there a risk that such a weapon, I guess a conventional variant of LRSO, could be destabilizing? Uh, well, right now there's no plan to buy a conventional LRSO. It doesn't mean that we couldn't certainly do that in the future. Uh, I, I would want to be careful not to um, upset the great progress that the team is making on LRSO right now by introducing something new. Uh, I think there is value in, in ensuring that you know any capabilities that we get from LRSO that Maybe we could spiral that up. That's certainly a possibility, uh, but uh, that decision has not been made and won't be necessarily be made. Won't be made by me. Um, as far as you know, if we had one uh, that was nuclear and if we had one that was conventionally armed, I mean, we've been there before. And, and I'll still go back to my my previous assertion that um, I don't buy the argument that they're destabilizing. Uh, I don't think that. If you uh, were to launch a uh, cruise missile, and even if it was uh, a war was heating up with an adversary, that they would, um, and if they thought that it was a uh, nuclear or didn't know for sure, they had some ambiguity. I'm I'm fairly certain they would wait because once you once you uh, enter and cross that threshold of nuclear use, that's a pretty big um, step to take for a country, and it doesn't matter who that 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 leader is of that country, they're going to really. Uh, weigh um, carefully their decisions to respond um, because, you know, they have, again, that capability to respond after they were, you know, ride an attack out, if you will. So, again, I don't, you have to buy the premise that, um, that they're destabilizing. I don't buy that premise. And, again, it's not founded really in, in fact or logic that I can really track down. And, uh, again, going back to the discussion we had, we had nuclear armed uh, alchems and we had conventionally armed alchems called the calcum uh, that was used back in desert storm so we've we've been down this road before i think i've also heard proposals that instead of developing uh, you know the nuclear armed lrso we can replace it with just a conventional cruise missile um what do you what do either of you think of that proposal of only having the only having the conventional capability um, peter you want to take that and i'll fill in well uh if what you're doing is basically you're saying your nuclear capability in terms of your bomber leg, your triad, you're just cutting it in half. I mean, you're basically taking away options from the president or a commander and recommending something to the president. You're telling the uh, bad guys that their air defenses have worked, that their access denial has worked, that we're not going to develop something to overcome it. And you basically said to them, they can put that area of our deterrent uh, they can dismiss it, uh, not totally, but it, it, why would you give your adversary the ability to defend and stop you from being able to deter their actions? That doesn't make any sense at all. And, and you know, to add on, Peter, I think it's, you know, these weapons are for deterrence, and of course, if deterrence fails, um, to be able to 
uh, respond appropriately. Um, there's a big difference in a conventional weapon and a nuclear weapon in the amount of destruction that one can uh, uh, that exists with you know the amount of destruction that one can uh, push to a country or um, or on the, on the field of uh, battle, if you will. So they're not battlefield weapons. The nuclear weapons aren't battlefield weapons. They are again uh, political weapons. Again, it's for deterrence. And um, I don't like to mix and match the the nuclear uh, or the conventional as a um, substitute for the nuclear piece because it's a totally different discussion. Yeah, I would just say, Patty Jane, and I once had an event which General Chilton, who was a speaker, went into this issue and he said he went through the number of planes required to deliver a conventional weapon to equal 125 megaton, excuse me, uh, 10 or 11 kiloton weapon uh, that we might use. And it's thousands of airplanes conducting thousands of strikes in order to equal the firepower of two or three 25 kiloton weapons. And he said, there's no comparison, particularly the bad guys are gonna know you can't do the damage you want to do to deter. And that's giving them an advantage that you really don't wanna take. Mm, that's a great way of looking at it. Um, another great audience question we have here um, is, would it be possible to discuss how the stealth characteristics of the future B-21 and those of the LRSO are complementary? Um, or in other words, why is the LRSO still highly relevant even on a highly penetrating platform? So, uh, Patty Jane, I think it's important to, you know, let's, let's take the Pacific as an example where um, the Chinese are pushing their defenses out uh, onto the islands. Uh, so they're, they're creating these islands out there that, that didn't exist uh, before. They're putting defense systems on there. So they're pushing out their uh, uh, anti-aircraft defense nets, if you will. Uh, it, so it's still important to ensure that we can, you know, you know penetrate uh, all the way in through those. But if I don't have to penetrate to hit a target, then I'd like to stand outside of the defenses, or at least the most stand outside of the most robust defenses. Uh, I want to be able to stay outside of those if possible, um, and then launch, be able to have the ability to launch several missiles uh, at multiple different targets. Again, that requires the adversary to have to target, for instance, uh, you know, some small, you know, some number, uh, five, 10, 15 um, weapons instead of just a single airplane. And so again, they are complementary from that from that standpoint. They give the president all sorts of options, and they they reduce risk to the mission, and risk to the force. Then is it also right that if you're um, if you have a standoff capability and, and you're reducing risks to the force, that actually increases the credibility of um, the U.S. nuclear threat because you know it's more believable that we would be willing to stand off than from adversary air defenses. Do I have that right? I think you're right there. And, and you know, the other piece of this I will point out, I know you talked about B-21, but B-52, we're keeping that B-52 until um, it's almost 100 years old. That's the plan right now. And of course, it is not uh, survivable in those uh, defenses that we just talked about. Uh, and if you're going to have the air leg of the triad, the B-52 is going to be the, a solid part of that air leg of the triad. You're going to need a standoff cruise missile that has the ability to, to get into the uh, a heavily defended area. Yeah, and I would say, Patty, that the general is 100% right, but even equally important is that cruise missile you have today. 
is not reliable enough. It's not going to be survivable enough. It's not going to have uh, the ability to penetrate. Plus, you've got the problem of you're going to have to test, and therefore your inventory goes down. Plus, the fire you can't extend its life. It's like someone similarly said about Miniman. There's a certain point you can't extend the life anymore, as Admiral Rogers said the other day. So, yes, if you're going to make the B-52 viable, which we want to, I mean, it's an extraordinary airplane, as General Dawkins said, you're going to be 100 years old. You have to have a new cruise missile in order to complement that plane to allow it to stand off and as a whole targets at risk. So if we canceled the LRSO then and weren't able to fly B-52s in the in their nuclear mission, would we would we have enough bombers, I guess, future B-51, uh, B-21 to execute the nuclear mission? Well, that'll that would depend on the presidential guidance at the time. You know, if the decision is made to cancel and a cruise missile or the entire program, then that's going to change. Uh, I would anticipate that that would um, either be result from a change in uh, presidential policy on how we view our deterrent. So, you know, all of this is this is not an Air Force push. This is guidance from the uh, president of the United States. He tells Commander Stratcom, here's how I want the employment guidance to go. Uh, here's how I, how, here's how I want um, you to use the deterrent, and here's how I expect it to be used if we ever went to conflict. And all of that dictates the uh, makeup of our triad. So if we're going to have the triad, if that's the political decision, then we've got to make sure that it's credible, that it's safe, that it's secure, and that it's reliable. And so that's all we're doing when we talk about whether it's GBSD or, uh, or LRSO uh, is, again, uh, modernizing our current capabilities. There's no new capabilities here, not like Russia and China, particularly Russia, who developed some novel nuclear capabilities. We're not on the arms race. We're just modernizing what we have based on presidential guidance. I think also, Patty, that if your conventional forces I mean, I'm, my boss, General Datula, wants, I think, 200 airplanes, bombers, uh, B-21s. But we have the smallest Air Force in our history, and not quite still, but almost the oldest Air Force in our history. And we need to modernize. And if we're going to say to the B-21, you're going to have to do two missions that the B-52 would also help you with. They're going out. You're not going to do the B-52 mission. It's gone. The airplane can't be used. You're putting an enormous strain on your conventional forces, which is what you would like as a fire break, so you don't have to go nuclear. Hmm. I see. Um, so we have time for a couple more questions. Um, the next one is about the timing of LRSO. Um, General Dawkins, I think you told us that we're on schedule for an initial operating capability of 2030. Um, and the question here is, is there a chance that there is a gap in capability, i.e., could the current outcome age out before LRSO is fielded, um, and and I'll add on what what risks are there if um, the the Alcom ages out before we can get LRSO online. Uh, well, again, uh, reemphasizing that we have life extension programs um, currently underway for the Alcom to ensure that if you know if we're going to field it, if uh, the Air Force is going to tell Stratcom that, hey, here's the outcome. We're going to make sure that it's it's ready to go and it's reliable and it's safe and secure. Um, if we get to the point where it's it can't be sustained any longer because of diminishing part suppliers, I mean, keep in mind a lot of these things, they were built in the 70s and 80s. Some of the, the uh, parts are having to be recreated 
if you will, if, if we continue to lose that capability, then we will basically rust our way into obsolescence with the um, with the standoff capability of our, our triad. So uh, that's the risk is if we delay too long is we will continue to have um, issues arise that where we question the reliability of the of the um, weapon and then we won't have it to use because we don't want to fly to fail uh, on any of our nuclear weapon systems. That's not something we can afford to do. We can't afford, you know, the, the United States credibility, the, the credibility of the president uh, with allies and adversaries is based on having a credible deterrence. Uh, and so we've got to take care of that. So again, I don't want to give anybody, any listeners the idea that um, we're not going to be able to life extend until the LRSO gets here. Uh, but I, I don't want to say, hey, if it's five years late, we're not going to have a problem. Or I don't want to give a, a date because we just don't know. We could, again, see something in the next couple of years that really causes us pause. There has been discussion of a nuclear posture review occurring under President-elect President -elect Biden, I guess a new one. General Dawkins, what are your expectations for timing and outcome of such a review? And then I would add, um, how do you see... Uh, LRSO being assessed by a new nuclear posture review. So uh, um, Admiral Richard talked about this, you know, uh, he welcomes a review. I, I agree with him. I think it's good for the new administration uh, to come in and take a, a look at the turn. I mean, it's such an important aspect of our national security that I want an administration to pay attention to the current plans that have been in place for four years. Not to mention the fact that you know the, the last NPR under a Democratic administration was in 2010. A lot of the uh, threats have changed and increased. Um, I, you know, there's an argument that they could have you know done a review towards the end of the of uh, the Obama administration because again enough things had changed then, and I think they sensed that that uh, that they knew that they had to continue down the path of modernization. So again, I welcome an NPR. I think they're going to ask us though. Uh, DOD to, to you know check our homework and see what the status is uh, uh, you know hey what's the status of uh, current Minuteman 3 what's the status of the B-52 how much life do they have left in them uh, we'll answer those questions and then you know we're going to give them the, the view uh, tell them the story of where we are on the modernization programs that we are on schedule on GBSD we are on schedule on LRSO uh, that we are on schedule on the B-21 and that you know, NNSA is on schedule and meeting uh, those requirements for us as well. So again, uh, I'm looking forward to any type of review that may come out. Peter, I've heard in the news, I think that um, LRSO might be considered for the chopping block in a future NPR. Um, what's what's your prediction? Um, how do you think that our future administration will conclude we need to do with LRSO? Well, I think there are some things that are gonna be what you say, on the table. Uh, GBSD will be on the table, the long-range uh, strike option or the cruise missile. Uh, the D-5 low-yield weapon may be moot at this point, and the Navy's cruise missile. I think all four of those will be to be reviewed at some point, but I agree with General Dawkins. A review, in my mind, gives you the chance to sustain a consensus that we have had in this country since 1945 and later that our deterrent is the number one job of the United States, that we have to have a triad, that it has to be modernized and credible. And as you know, as General Harrensack, an old friend of ours, of General Hawkins said, that after the end of the Cold War, we did go on a nuclear procurement holiday, and we also stopped thinking about nuclear policy. And if you, 
I have char charts over here on the wall. I won't get them, but one of them was printed by the Pentagon in the nuclear handbook between 1991 and 2020, roughly in the late 1920s. We will not deploy a single new cruise missile, bomber, submarine, or land-based ICBM. And during that period of time, the Russians will have deployed 21 new types of bombers, cruise missiles, ICBMs, submarines, and sea-launched ballistic missiles. As Harold Brown once said, as you know, our former Secretary of Defense, we build, they build, we stop, they build. And even during the Cold War, there were, at the end of the Cold War with the end of the Soviet Union, there was about a four-year hiatus when the Russians didn't do very much. Then Mr. Putin came into office and you know the rest is history where they're, what, 90% now modernized for their entire deterrent. So um, I welcome a review. I think we should have it. I think the administration is gonna come down where the Obama administration, the Trump administration, where Bush and President Carter and all presidents before them said, we need to have a modern, credible triad and we have to do the warheads and we have to certainly do NC3 and in order to maintain deterrence. So we are running up on the end of our webinar today. Um, if, if the audience and our panelists don't mind, I'm gonna squeeze in one last uh, question that I missed earlier because I think it's important. Um, this question is about um, the NNSA's work on the W80-4. Um, as we know, the, the LRSO won't be able to fly with um, a warhead loaded on it. So uh, the question here is, um, if the NNSA finished the W80-4 first production unit in fiscal year 26 or, or any later than their original estimate of FY25, um, will that suffice to meet uh, the, Air, your, the Air Force IOC date for the full LRSO? Um, I guess in other words, General Dawkins, are you confident that NNSA will be able to get the W80-4 done in time to fly on the LRSO? Uh, yes, provided with the assumption there's stable funding uh, and it, you know, it's supported uh, in Congress and by the administration. Again, uh, if, if again, stable funding is very important. That's what got us into, you know, having no margin left uh, was the sequestration, um, the Budget Control Act. All those things didn't help as we were starting these programs in 2013 and 2014. Um, and so that was the biggest issue that we heard is lacking stable funding. I can't tell you uh, what will deliver on time. So again, gotta have stable funding. Uh, we don't have any margin left uh, to, to mess around and you know hope that the strategic environment gets better and less threatening. Uh, again, if we're gonna have these weapons, they've got to be taken care of uh, and they've got to be credible, uh, safe and secure. And that, uh, to do that, we've got to do our modernization. Patty, let me just add very quickly, Mackenzie Eaglin, who you know is at the American Enterprise Institute, did a chart uh, a couple of days ago. Secretary of Defense Gates left us a plan of a buildup of the military. And the Budget Control Act, as General Dawkins mentioned, cut a trillion dollars out of that. The upshot was that we cut $540 billion over 10 years out of Mr. Gates's plan. And that's what we're trying to make up. And so to do that again would be, you know, just like we did at the end of the Cold War, we could go back to a nuclear holiday. We don't want to do that. So I, I agree 100% with the general um, that stable, consistent, knowable funding uh, is critical to maintain uh, program credibility and
sustainment. I think that's a great message to end our webinar on, on the importance of stable funding for uh, NNSA and DOD nuclear modernization programs. Um, see, we have some folks from Congress on here. Um, so with that, I would like to thank our panelists for sharing their insights today during our webinar on the long-range standoff weapon, um, and thank our audience for joining us on this important conversation and, and asking such thoughtful questions. If you have any further questions or would like to continue discussing, um, you can contact me using the uh, information listed on the screen. And then last thing, immediately following this event, you'll receive a survey that we hope you'd complete to help us improve our public programs. So with that, thanks again, everyone, for joining us and hope you have a great day.